Let us pray. Our God and Father, we know that you have spoken to us in your word. We know that by your spirit, you continue to speak through that word to us this morning. So Lord, we ask that you would open our ears to hear what you're saying and our hearts to respond with faith and obedience. We pray this in the name of your risen son, amen. You may be seated. You know what impresses me about Jesus' disciples? I am impressed by their remarkable capacity to continually misunderstand and disbelieve the truth about him. I'm serious. Those men who followed Jesus around all those years during his earthly ministry, they had an uncanny ability to just miss the point. Just think about all the times that they misunderstood what he was trying to teach them. Like, like that time that they went to that village in Samaria and the people were not very hospitable and they didn't welcome Jesus. And so as they're leaving, James and John get this great idea and they ask Jesus, would it be okay if they called down lightning from heaven to incinerate all those townspeople? Or there's a time when, you know, there's a time when Jesus is, is telling them about how he will soon be handed over and suffer and he will die. And the very next thing they do is they have this argument amongst themselves over which of them is the greatest. Or there's that time, you know, there's that time when uh, they're in the the boat at night and Jesus is walking on the water and they think he's a ghost. Um, Or that other time when they're in that boat and the storm comes up and they're panicking and, uh, and Jesus rebukes them and he calls them men of little faith. Or there's that time that he says to Philip, he says, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me, Philip? I think that he could say that to, it seems like almost all of them. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me? Honestly, you got to hand it to them. I mean, for Jesus's elite, chosen, closest followers and confidants, they really are remarkably slow to actually understand and believe. And that's true when it comes to the resurrection as well. You know, we, we often talk about Thomas, Thomas the doubter, doubting Thomas. Give him such a hard time, poor guy. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India. And the one thing that we remember about him is that day where he insisted he wouldn't believe. But Thomas was not alone in that. He wasn't the only one who was slow to believe in the resurrection. In the gospel of Luke, we're told that, that the first people to go and find out about the resurrection is this group of women that includes Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary Magdalene, and a woman named Joanna. And they go to the tomb and it's empty. And then they, they have a vision of angels who give them a message. The angels say, he is not here, but has risen. And so, of course, they're thrilled and they go back to tell the disciples. And what do the disciples do? Luke says that they dismiss it as an idle tale, which is a polite way of saying that they think that it's just a bunch of hysterical women saying a bunch of nonsense. And of course, they do go check it out. Peter runs over and he investigates and he finds that the tomb is empty. And Luke says that Peter marvels at what he sees. 
But somehow that marveling doesn't seem to translate into actually believing what the angel said about how he had risen. And the next thing that we read about in Luke, immediately Luke tells the story of those other two followers, those close followers of Jesus who are leaving Jerusalem and they're going home to Emmaus and they meet Jesus on the road, you know, and they don't recognize him. He seems to be in disguise, but they meet Jesus. And here they are telling Jesus all about the wild events of his own death and resurrection, like it's brand new news to him. And um, and, and they even say to him, they say, some women of our company were at the tomb in the early morning and did not find his body. And they came back to us saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So those two followers, not only did they know the tomb is empty and they've heard the report from the angels, they know what was said, but they're all very confused and they're not sure what to make of it. And how does Jesus respond? He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe everything that the prophets have spoken. And of course, you know what happens next. They, they sit down at a table with Jesus to have a meal and he reveals himself to them. Well, then of course, they're very excited. And so they run back to Jerusalem to tell the 11, the remaining 11 disciples, we have met with the risen Lord. So at this point, the evidence is really piling up. At this point, it's not just there's a tomb that's empty and there's a group of women who have reported this thing that the angels told them. At this point, they have multiple independent corroborations of this report that say that he really has risen and he's walking around. Surely, surely by now, these 11 men who spent all those years in his direct company day after day, surely they will believe what they are told. You would think so. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Because what happens next? What do, what do we hear in that passage that was read from Luke chapter 24 just a moment ago? As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they, they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Multiple independent reports of his resurrection. And then Jesus himself shows up right in front of them and greets them and says, peace be with you. And they're scared and they think he's a ghost. In fact, Jesus has to give them further proof. He has to give them further proof and tell them, look, come here and actually touch and feel my resurrected body. Look what he says in verse 38. Why are you troubled? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So Thomas wasn't the only one who doubted. They all did. They were all slow to believe the news that the angels told those women. And even when they are given concrete physical proof, even when Jesus confronts them with his own body, they still hesitate. What does Luke say? And when Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and feet and they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. I think that's remarkable. It's remarkable that they still disbelieved after all of this, but it's also remarkable why. What does Luke say? They disbelieved for joy. 
Now, scholars who write commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, they often express puzzlement over this phrase. Why does Luke say they still disbelieved for joy? That's strange because, as one scholar puts it, because joy is otherwise almost entirely associated with the response of positive acceptance in the Gospel of Luke. How then is it the cause of unbelief? Which is a good point. You know, usually when you think of people experiencing joy around Jesus, it's because they either believe or they have experienced the good news of his kingdom and they're rejoicing because of it. But in this particular case, it seems that joy is not the avenue of belief. Joy is actually the barrier. Joy is the thing keeping them from believing. Joy is what leads to unbelief. Why? Why is that? I was thinking about that question this week. And as I was thinking about it, I was reminded of something that, that J.R.R. Tolkien says about fairy tales. He says that one of the things that stand out about all great fairy tales is that they do not avoid darkness, tragedy, and sorrow. They do not, he says, they do not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. What fairy tales do deny however, is that these things will have the final word. Because in every great fairy tale you see, in every great fairy tale, there's that moment. Tolkien calls it the turn. It's usually when things are at their darkest and bleakest. And then all of a sudden, something magnificent happens. Something changes. All of a sudden, the prince arrives and he awakens the princess from her enchanted sleep. All of a sudden, the evil ring of power is thrown into the fire. The wicked witch meets her end. The curse is broken. And in that moment, everything changes. And instantaneously, sadness becomes celebration and sorrow turns into joy. And not just any kind of joy. Tolkien said that the joy you feel at that moment is joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. It's one of the reasons we love fairy tales. We love fairy tales because they don't, they don't deny the reality or existence of darkness. They simply describe a world in which darkness does not and cannot have the final word. And I think that's maybe why those disciples struggled so much to believe the news they were told that Jesus had risen. Maybe that's what Luke means when he says that they disbelieved for joy because what they were being told, what they were being asked to believe, what Jesus himself was telling them, it just seemed like a fairy tale, like something wondrous and thrilling but far too good to be true. And if you think about it, you can understand why they might have felt that way, why they might have been so hesitant. For three years, these men had followed Jesus around every day, listening to him talk about the overwhelming kindness and love of God, watching him as he cured people of sicknesses, made lame people walk, delivered people from bondage, seeing him offer forgiveness and healing to people that others had long ago given up on. For three years, they'd watched all this happen. 
And over those three years, they, they'd come to believe, against all odds, they had come to believe that maybe Jesus was actually right. Maybe God was more loving than they had ever imagined. Maybe he really was coming to set all things right and bring his kingdom in and put an end to all of their pain. Maybe, maybe their lives were not defined by their own mediocrity and failures, but that they were actually being caught up in something grand and glorious and beautiful. Over the course of three years, those men had slowly allowed themselves to feel hope like they had never felt before. And then, all of a sudden, Jesus is arrested and he crowds turn against him, the same crowds that were chanting for him a week before, and they see the man upon whom all their hopes rested. They see the man that had promised them everything. They see him belittled and beaten they see him mocked and made to look weak and impotent. And then they see him killed. And all those hopes that had been slowly building for three years that the world really might just be better than they had ever imagined, all of a sudden it came crashing down on a Friday afternoon when they watched their would-be Messiah give up his spirit and breathe his last. Is it any wonder that several days later that they struggled to believe the news that they were being told? You know, to be hopeful, to be hopeful when your life is filled with disappointments, that's hard enough. But when the thing that you thought, when the thing that you thought was the basis for all your hope is violently and suddenly taken away from you, you can understand why someone in that situation might hesitate to open themselves up to hope like that again. The reason that they disbelieved, it wasn't just incredulity that such a thing could happen, that a person could rise from the dead. What held them back was their resistance to the joy that threatened to overwhelm them. It wasn't that they didn't want to believe. It's just that it seemed far too good to be true. And no wonder how often the same could be said for you and me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, that when we say the creed in a minute ago, you're crossing your fingers behind your back or something like that. I'm sure, I'm sure if I asked you, do you give your assent to the, to the claim we make on Easter Sunday that Christ is risen? I'm sure that you would say yes. But do you really believe in Jesus' resurrection at an emotional level? Have you really given yourself over to the overwhelming joy of what that means for you? You know, before his conversion to Christianity, um, C.S. Lewis, uh, when, when he was still an atheist, he was, he was like Tolkien. He loved the world of myths and fairy tales because there, especially in myths, he experienced a purer and more profound joy than he had ever experienced anywhere else. The only problem was none of it was real. Nearly all that I loved, he said, 
Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think a lot of us could sympathize with how Lewis felt. I don't know all of you very well. I'm sure there's some of you I haven't yet even met. But I have talked and eaten and sat with enough of you in my office and heard enough of your stories to know that you carry around your own sources of disappointment and sorrow and regret. Perhaps for some of you, maybe this is disappointments that have been going on for years. Maybe it involves your work. Maybe you've been hoping and praying for years that you would get a better or at least a better paying job. And you're five, six, seven years down the road and nothing's changed and you've still got the same dead end, meaningless, unfulfilling work to do. Or maybe your disappointments revolve around relationships, conflicts with family members that just seem to get worse every year. Friendships that you have put time and effort into building that seem to go nowhere. Children who haven't turned out like you hoped they would. Problems in your marriage that you keep hoping will go away, but they just never seem to get any better. Or maybe the disappointments you feel, maybe they're not so much focused on other people, but they're focused on yourself. Aspects of yourself that perpetually frustrate you. Bad habits that you just keep falling back into over and over again. Things that you have done, things that you have done that you don't want to admit to anyone, but they still haunt you and they still make you feel ashamed. I don't know what kind of disappointments you have in your life, but I know you have them. We all do. And we're all very good at coming here on Sunday morning and looking happy and smiling when someone asks us how we're doing, but we all have things that cause us grief and sorrow things that make us wonder whether the future will really be any better. And in that sense, we're not really that different from those disciples. Now, what was the first thing that Jesus says to them when he shows up? What's the first thing he says? He says, peace to you. Peace be with you. And notice that when he says this, this isn't just some kind of kind greeting. And it's not well-wishing on his part. He's not saying, I hope that you feel peace. He's not even telling them how they should feel. He's not saying you should have a feeling of peace, feel peaceful. No, what he's doing is he's actually making a declaration to them about the reality of their lives. What he's telling them is, is Paul, St. Paul puts it in Colossians chapter one. He is telling them that he has made peace for them. He has won peace for them by the blood of his cross. That because of what he has done, their lives are filled with peace, that they are at peace with God. What he's telling them is that whether they realize it or not, whether it feels true, whether it seems to contradict everything about their experience, he's telling them that their lives don't revolve around and are not defined by their personal disappointments or sorrows or regrets, that their future does not depend on their own hard work or strategic planning, and that the burden of their past no longer has to weigh on them. Because because the plot has turned. He has defeated the wicked witch of sin and death. 
The curse has been broken. The sun has risen. The darkness has been put to flight. Tomorrow night um, in our reading group, Reading with the Saints, we're going to be discussing a book called Revelations of Divine Love by a 14th century English mystic named Julian of Norwich. And I know that a lot of you right now are feeling very jealous and realizing you made a massive mistake in not signing up for this. Um, and it's okay. I'll expect to see you next time. But tomorrow night, talking about Julian's revelations. And it's an interesting book. It's a series of visions that she has and she records visions that she has when she is so sick and in so much pain, she is absolutely convinced she's going to die. And in one of those visions, Jesus speaks to her and he tells her, all will be well. And you will see for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. That's an odd thing to tell a woman who's lying in pain on what she thinks is her deathbed. But it's true. Because Jesus has risen, all indeed will be well. That's what Jesus is saying to those frightened disciples when he shows up to them. Peace be with you. All is well, all will be well, and you will see for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. Do you believe that? I'm going to ask you do, you, do you honestly believe that you are a part of a wondrous and glorious real life fairy tale? Or does it all just sound too good to be true? You notice how Jesus responded to them when they continued to disbelieve so many times? They continued to disbelieve and how does he respond? Well, he asked them for a piece of fish and he eats with them. It's kind of weird that he does that. But you know, it's actually a pattern. Jesus does this multiple times when he meets people after his resurrection. He did it with those two people on the road to Emmaus. You know, he meets them and what does he do? He sits down at a table to share a meal with them. In the Gospel of John, we hear about a later time when Jesus meets, them on, uh, meets the disciples on a beach and he has breakfast with them. It's such a simple gesture and yet it says something so wonderful and so profound about Jesus that after he has raised from the dead, he has gone through the gates of Hades itself and he has been raised from the dead and his own disciples don't believe him. He doesn't get angry at them. He's not impatient with them. He simply shows up, appears to them, tells them all will be well and eats with them. And you know, it's what he does with us too. Something we experience every week. Every week we come here and we hear the words of Jesus himself. Peace be with you. And every week we, we come up and we gather around this table and we have a meal with the risen Christ who feeds us and tells us all will be well. All manner of things shall be well. Friends, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christ is risen and all things will be well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.